Welcome to the Learning is Disruptible podcast. We're your hosts, Tony and Jerry Lynn Brown. This is a podcast exploring the intersection of disruptive innovation and homeschool. Kids naturally love to learn, and if their education is structured correctly, they will become lifelong learners. You can customize learning for children of varying ages, strengths, and interests. Do you have what it takes to be different and to be an innovative leader in your home and community? Welcome to the Learning is Disruptible podcast. This is our first podcast episode, and we're excited to share some of the things that we've learned along the way as we explore building a foundation of disruptive innovation in education. We think one of the great ways to do that is going to be through homeschool, just because it's a totally different approach. And as a background, we are a homeschooling family. We've got five kids ranging in ages from one to 11, and we've homeschooled their entire lives, although both Tony and I were public school educated and felt like it did the job in the moment. But looking back, we see that there was room for improvement. Some of my educational journey, like I did okay, and I did really well my last few years of high school, and then I went on and did well in college and maybe a little bit better in grad school. But there was this culture of learning isn't cool in my high school experience, and I've had to overcome that. I love learning now, and I teach myself all kinds of new things because I find their relevance, and I'm looking to get better at the different things I'm facing in my life, and I feel like learning makes all that possible, but I had to teach myself how to do it. So we feel like there's some discussion out there about how public schools can lean into disruption, but as we've been homeschooling for almost a decade, we really think we have something to add to the conversation specifically how homeschool can be disruptive innovation. So to get started, I think we need to answer the question, what is disruptive innovation? So just to set that foundation, there's three basic kinds of innovation. The first kind is a sustaining innovation. To not use a school example to start with, the most obvious sustaining innovation would be when they release a new model of an iPhone. So when you go to an iPhone 12 to an iPhone 13, like I did this week, it didn't give Apple a new customer. It gave me a little bit better version of a phone that's in lived experience, really isn't all that different from the prior one. And it was a little more expensive for you too. Yeah, that's true. So maybe Apple made a couple of more dollars off of me than they might have otherwise. That's a sustaining innovation. The next kind of innovation... So wait, let's talk about what does that look like in education. Oh, that's a good idea. So one example that I could think of here locally, we have our school district has a career and technical center. And on their website, it says, the center expands the opportunities available to district students with unique programs, certifications, and advanced level courses. Courses are taught by industry experts in a state-of-the-art learning environment. So, I mean, right there in that statement, you see that they're serving the same population of students. They're doing it for more money in their state-of-the-art building, but they are also providing more and and better services to those students. So that would be a sustaining innovation in the education world. Yeah, that's a good example. Thanks for keeping me on track. (laughs) So the next kind of innovation is an efficiency innovation. If I sort of imagine what an efficiency innovation might look like in the Apple iPhone universe. 
It might be that Apple finds a way to make the design faster so that it takes less time to design the next iPhone. Or they might, it might be something in manufacturing where they figure out a way to manufacture the phone for cheaper or with cheaper inputs or less labor through automation or something like that. So that's kind of what an efficiency innovation might look like, just using the iPhone example. So in a school, this might look like new programs that allow more kids to be taught using fewer teachers or new structures that use fewer administrators, things like that. Am, am I right in that? Yeah, that's probably about right, although there's probably not a lot of a s incentive to pursue efficiency innovation, just because one way that a lot of schools and school systems like to advertise themselves as their smaller, uh, class, smaller sizes. class sizes. So yeah. so that efficiency is going to be tough in the uh, education really. universe just because it's, it's not something that you can brag about. Mm -hmm. So on to disruption, okay. disruptive innovation. So to stick with our iPhone example, the iPhone was disrupted when it first came out. And famously, it wasn't obvious that the iPhone was a disruptive innovation. Clay Christensen, who is the source of the academic concept of disruptive innovation, famously said the iPhone is not disruptive, but maybe he missed some aspects of how it was going to come to market because it combined the iPod and the App Store and eventually how many of us use our phones for things that we used to use a desktop computer for. Banking and yeah. watching TV, for example. I mean, how many people are watching sports or playing games on their phones? Yeah, even simple things like calculators and calendars are now on our phones. Yeah, GPS, which I used to have a standalone GPS device from Garmin. So what could disruptive innovation look like in education? So I don't think we always viewed our homeschool as disruptive in the beginning, although we certainly look at it that way now. I guess I hadn't realized this before, but that's kind of what Clay Christensen did. He said, oh, this iPhone isn't disruptive, but we're learning now for us that our homeschool is, is certainly disruptive in our home and for our kids. But what we hope to communicate through this podcast is that you can disrupt yourself. You can disrupt your homeschool. But also, homeschool has the potential to disrupt traditional education on a grand scale. At least we think it has that potential. Hey, you might as well set your sights high. Yeah. So, I do want to be really clear that all kinds of innovation are good. Whether it's a business, or whether it's a school, or a hospital, a church, or anything, you need to have innovation. You need to find new ways to do things. You need to Find ways to meet more customers' needs if you're serving customers. You need to find a way to reach out to more students if your job is to reach out to students. You need to improve your product so that people stay excited about it on sustaining innovations. You need to be efficient. Finding ways to be more efficient with your time and your money is excellent. But I think there's a distinct need for disruptive innovation in all kinds of areas in life. So... We've kind of mentioned Clay Christensen. He developed this theory of disruptive innovation in a talk that he gave at Brigham Young University a number of years ago. We'll have that in the show notes so you can go
go watch Clay talk about it himself. He talked a little bit about how disruptive innovation was needed in the hospital setting. And the basic idea was you're not going to get these super complicated hospitals to suddenly become cheap and affordable again. And so you need to push down into the medical hierarchy tasks that used to be really complicated. So one example of that would be something that you used to have to go to a hospital for, you would now go to your family practitioner. And stuff that you might use to go to your family practitioner for, you need to be able to do that at your house. And we're kind of seeing uh, some efforts on that front with telehealth. They're attempting to do that in a way that makes things accessible to people in their homes that they used to have to go somewhere for. That hasn't played itself out completely and sometimes disruption takes a long time but that's an example of something that has potential and has become possible recently and partly accelerated by the pandemic experience we've all shared. So I think our listeners will begin to see pretty quickly Tony that you've got the the business side of this discussion and and I've got the education side but we think that our two perspectives blended together is really what's going to help us to stand out and, and have a unique little bit to add to the conversation. But so traditionally, to go back to what you were saying, things that used to be done at a public school and maybe people still think need to be done at a public school, people need to see that those things can be done in the home. Even something like reading, I think that a lot of people thought, well, I need to send my kid to school so they can learn how to read. And we have seen that they can learn to read at home. And I know with my first and second, I commented to friends even, why would you send your child to school and have someone else experience the thrill of them learning how to read? It's just one of the coolest things about homeschool, I think. And even with now our number four, learning how to read, I'm just astounded at how much she's picking up even on her own without me formally working with her to, to learn how to read it. It's an example of something that maybe people have the mindset of it needs to be done at the public school and really it can be done in the home. Um, well, and, and to go into that just a little bit, and I'm sure this will come up again in the future, but you were really structured, especially with our oldest, yes, on teaching him the the mechanics and the the practice and the repetition and the whatever, and it really worked well. He's it, a great reader. He's, he outreads us. <laughs> yeah, he, he often reads a meaningful size book multiple days a week, like the, the whole book, book <laughs> each day. So he's, he might read a different book every day, just depending on what other activities might be going. And I know when I was 11-year-old, I read probably more than most of my friends, but I didn't read anywhere near what our oldest does. And he is getting towards the end of reading Tolkien's Lord of the Rings on his own. We have read it as a family, but I don't know a lot of 11-year-olds that read J.R.R. Tolkien. I think you were going to talk more about number four. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, well, you tell. You tell her story. <laughs> so... She, this is true of all of our kids in the homeschool world, but she was an experiment. <laughs> and I just, the more that I've learned about education and how kids learn and the fact that in a literate society, it's almost impossible, you know, given, given 
the right support for any child not to learn how to read. And so I wanted to see if she could learn how to read without formal reading lessons and instruction and curriculum. And here she is, and she just astounds me when she says, Mom, that says rhinoceros. <laughs> and I say, how do you know that? And she says, because I read it. <laughs> right. She's... Now, granted, we read a lot in our family. We read books out loud together. We read independently. Read all independently. Of us. Her older siblings are all effective readers. And I mean, they have different reading amounts. Our oldest reads more than everybody else, but he's also got a head start on them. But the, the next two girls, they are highly capable readers. Yep. So. Do we want to talk about some of the things that need to be in place for disruptive innovation to take place? Yeah, as I've read and listened to a bunch of Clay's work, he kind of identified two basic scenarios where disruptive innovation becomes possible. So the first one is probably the easiest, and that's when you have non-consumption. And I'll just say the second one, then we'll dive into each of these a little bit. The second one is parts of the market are overserved. So at first, we've kind of thought about non-consumption. And, well, everybody consumes school. We have a compulsory public education system. You, you have to educate your children. Right, right. But then I realized, wait a minute. We had this whole culture. And I, I was in the classes with the smart kids. These were AP classes. And learning wasn't cool. So we were at school not consuming education. So maybe there's not a lot of non-consumption of school, but there's a whole bunch of non-consumption of education. Right. It, it, it depends on what you're measuring. Are you measuring attendance? Are you attending? Are you measuring the actual learning that is taking place? Right. And there's lots of fights out there on what, how you assess and what assessments are and what, which ones are good and Maybe that's not our expertise, but we may get into that on occasion. So the other thing is that parts of the market are overserved. So, so I think about this in our in my homeschool world early on when I was having conversations with friends about you know that I was go going to homeschool. They would say things like, "Oh, I wish that I could send my kids to school for half a day to do the core subjects and then bring them home and have fun with them and." do the fun things together with them. I had a friend that eventually pulled her kids out of public school because she realized they were in school for seven and a half hours a day. They came home and had homework and then it was time to get ready for bed and off to bed and start the whole thing over the next morning and they weren't getting their family time. And so they were being overserved by the public education system. They they were being given more than they wanted. Yeah. So what else could that look like? Is there any other examples of what over-serving could be? Well, we've talked about sports specifically yeah. or, or extracurriculars. And sports specifically, I think there's maybe, and this is just throwing a number out there, but a third of the students, a third of the students that are actually participating in the sports that these public schools offer. And even then, you have many parents who are paying lots of money for club sports in addition to or in place of the school-sponsored sports teams. Yeah. Well, and my uh, 
graduate school is Texas A&M University, which is now part of the SEC, which I'm pretty sure is mostly a sports league with some universities attached to it. That's what they spend their money on. And even we're in Texas, there's $60 million high school football stadiums around us. And that is... That's another sustaining innovation, by kind the way. Of, yeah, <laughs> it is definitely not a, an efficiency innovation. That is very clear. <laughs> but not that many kids benefit from it. So let's talk about some other examples of stories of disruptive innovation. And for people that know disruptive innovation, this is going to be like 101, but that's okay. Netflix and Blockbuster is, is really one of the classic examples of a new disruptive startup displacing a existing business that was technically doing quite well. And that's actually your hint that you might be at risk of disrupting or being disrupted because things are looking really, really good until they aren't. So Blockbuster had thousands of stores and thousands of employees, and they made lots of their money off of late fees, and they also sold candy and drinks and popcorn and other things that you might want while you're watching a movie or renting a video game. And early in Netflix life, they offered to sell to Blockbuster, and Blockbuster said, pshaw, we have no interest. And then later on, the story goes that Netflix offered to partner with Blockbuster, and the problem was that their business models were incompatible. Netflix did better when somebody held the movie longer, because that means they were paying less postage when it was a mail-order disc business. Of course, now we know that Blockbuster, at least last I heard, only had one store left, and they mostly don't exist as a business. They tried their own version of Netflix for a little while, but it became cannibalistic towards their regular business, so they had to give it up because it was messing up their stock price. And the problem is, when you don't cannibalize yourself, you let somebody else do it instead. And so that's why it's actually really hard to disrupt yourself, because it you goes against be, how you measure success. Right, you have to be willing to do something a little bit scary, or you mentioned Netflix didn't look like competition, they looked like an inferior product compared to Blockbuster, but you have to have that, what looks like, at first glance, an inferior product to to disrupt. And I think that that really applies to homeschool, too. I can think of lots of examples of how homeschool looks like an inferior product. Um, you get fewer extracurriculars built in. Um, you have fewer social interactions is one thing. We people, could argue about that one, though. <laughs> we could argue about that one, but that a lot of people looking in from the outside think that. Your moms or your parents, whoever's at home with the kids, get they get less personal time. And you're doing, at your own expense, largely, what a public school will do for free. And so homeschool looks very much like the inferior product to a public school education. But we think that that's one of the ways that it's it has the potential to to be disruptive. Yeah, and you're you're really good folks that talk about disruptive innovation in the education universe. They they do talk a little bit about homeschool and maybe a little bit more about 
learning pods and micro schools and things like that. And I think the reason that they don't talk that much about homeschool is there's this draw of being able to solve the education problem at scale, which is totally understandable. You want to reach as many kids as possible, and you want to do it in a way that's scalable, and you can do it at a cost that you can predict, and you want predictable outcomes, and all those things. So there's there's a reason that, that people attempt so much to get to force disruptive innovation into the public school setting. But even then, it's mostly it turns into sustaining innovations. So I think what motivates our thinking is looking for a better way. We think most problems with education are caused by their systems and structures as they currently exist. And there's a lot of good and maybe even some bad reasons for the current systems and structures. So through the life of this podcast, we hope to explore ways and system level ideas that could create new opportunities for students and teachers to flourish, but partly doing it through the homeschool lens. Thanks for listening to the Learning is Disruptible podcast. Share this episode with a friend, subscribe to the show, and leave us a five-star review. See you soon.